Here's Greening. Pajot's in front. Condra in the corner. Sneaking in is Benoit. The cross ice pass. Andre Benoit shoots. Stop me It's just way too hot for me. It doesn't need to be this hot in any situation right now. Yeah, and if you looked on Facebook like two days ago, it was all people bitching about how bad the weather was. And now in Buffalo, it's ridiculously warm. And that's how it's going to be in two days again, too, because it's supposed to get below average cold kind of on the weekend, yeah, right? that's great. I mean, that's what they say. If you don't like the weather in Buffalo, just wait. A day. wait. Yep. And uh, we waited, I guess, two weeks to do this show because I had to go back for another oil change last week. And <laughs> we almost had some kind of situation where I was going to have to Skype in to finish this one, but we got beyond that somehow. But two weeks ago when we were here for – this is season three, episode 12. It's May 21st, 2013. Uh, Steve Bennett, Don Ross, the two hosts – uh, and our last show, Season 3, Episode 11, was a good one. We had the Puck Daddy, Greg Wyshynski, to talk about the NHL playoffs. We had uh, Tass Mellis here to talk about the NBA playoffs. And we had John Wertheim to kind of just go over a bunch of different stuff that's been going on in sports and over at Sports Illustrated. And today we're going to talk to uh, Kenny Albert, who is the play-by-play man for the Rangers on radio and uh, the Rangers Radio Network. And he also called some of the first-round games that were on versus between the Islanders and the Penguins. Mm-hmm. And we know he does football and all kinds of different stuff that Kenny does, all kinds of different uh, announcing. We're going to talk to Kenny a little bit about the NHL playoffs in general and also about the Rangers and whether or not they're done. You know, they're definitely teetering on the brink of that again. Right. And uh, we're also going to talk to Ben Ryder, who's been on the show a few times before, um, a Yale guy. Somehow he snuck another Yale guy in, and I didn't even do it on purpose. <laughs> I forgot he went to Yale before I booked him, and then when I opened up his bio, bio, yeah. I'm like, oh, no, another Yale guy? Uh, but we won't kill much time on anything Yale-related. It's mostly going to be baseball and some of the features he's written about and some of the players that have come through Major League Baseball in the last couple of years and... Um, it's kind of an exciting time to be a baseball fan. But uh, before we get – oh, and we're going to have a really different kind of a book club update today. And uh, then we're going to do uh, one more thing at the end, one last thing. But uh, in the meantime, before we can do any of that, we've got to get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, first thing we're going to do today is we're going to just kind of go over what we've seen in the NHL and the NBA playoffs in the last couple weeks. And to start with the NBA playoffs, they're down to four. And uh, not only are they down to four, uh, but by the time... Today is over. Tuesday, the first round of the or the first two games of the Memphis San Antonio series are going to be over uh, before hmm. Indiana and Miami get a chance to play their first game. Bizarre. Yeah, yeah it's always weird. It, uh, there's some weird with this guy, but a lot of it has to do with buildings and TV right, right. and 
But it gets really weird around this time of year when it comes to um, the playoffs and the schedules. Are any basketball teams banging into hockey teams? Nope. Now it's, are, right? uh, the Knicks are the last team. Okay, right. New York was the last team with two markets in. We're down to Memphis versus San Antonio in the West. And San Antonio really kind of laid it down on Memphis in that first game. So it's going to be interesting to see today if Memphis is going to bounce back. Memphis is a good team, and they, they've been impressive in the playoffs so far, beating a good Clippers team, a pretty good Golden State team. And obviously we know what San Antonio is. You don't need to be a big basketball fan to know that San Antonio is one of the better franchises of the last 15 right. years. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And then out east, it's really can anyone challenge LeBron and the Heat? And are the Pacers that team that could? I, I doubt it. Uh, I kind of feel like this has been set up all year to be the Heat versus someone, and I don't see any reason after the first round to think any different, and I don't see any reason after the second round to think any different. No, we asked somebody, uh, I think in an interview, I can't remember who it was, but they asked if, if they would see a game six, I think, and they said no. And so far that's hasn't been uh, – they really haven't gotten that close. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like it seems like it's headed to Miami versus San Antonio. I want to see how Memphis kind of back bounces back after a tough game one, but that's kind of where I see it going this so far. And, and I gotta say, there's been some really great games. Um, that I, uh, San Antonio Golden State was one of them. Um, but uh, I don't know that it's been the best playoffs, just because in a sense we're People just, just all waiting. kind of waiting yep. for the Heat to win. Really, you know, I, I don't know that. Uh, you know anything has happened to, to change me off of that? And it, I made a mistake. I said the the Grizzlies beat the um, the Clippers and the Golden State, but it was the Thunder, Oklahoma Thunder, and and oh, okay. and, and the injury to to Westbrook from the Thunder is a big reason why some of the steam has come out of these NBA playoffs because the Thunder weren't able to be the Thunder. Right. So, but uh, what do you think about the NHL since we've been on last? Um, now I think teams are. You know what? I don't know what it is, but the first round to me is always more fun, and I've been a little less interested in this round. I don't know why. I'll get back into it, I guess, but uh, Chicago-Detroit's been pretty good. Boston-New York. New York looks like the team that I thought was going to lose in the first round. Uh, Ottawa, it was nice to see them win one in overtime. Spezza coming back for that game. Yeah, I mean... It's been a decent series. I think the only bad one looks like Boston-New York because I just don't think New York... I didn't think they were that good in the first round, and uh, they squeezed by. And I, I don't think they win more than a game in that series. The interesting thing is, can Detroit pull this off? Yeah, and and upset Chicago because Detroit's in the position now with a two to one lead and another home game. Right. You know, and it might be difficult if the Blackhawks were to fall down to them three to one. But it, you know, it's a long way from over. I think still, but. I'd be wor- I'm a, I'd be slightly nervous if I was a Blackhawks fan. I saw a good point. A uh, local radio guy, Jeremy White, I can't remember what his tweet was about, but got a response from just some random Twitter follower out there and said that if you're a Sabres fan, it might not be a bad idea to root for Detroit in this series because Chicago might be a team out there willing to trade for Ryan Miller if they end up going down because their goaltending's a little bit shaky. So Right. Crawford doesn't inspire you in any way right he's, he's a serviceable guy but that if if they do fall out that's going to be the place where people are going to start pointing fingers but yeah uh pittsburgh new york we've been talking the whole or pittsburgh chicago we've been talking about the whole time as being the nhl's dream matchup 
Still in play. Still in just, play. Just teetering a little bit there. Um, Detroit. Uh, my number two thing this week. I'm a bad soccer fan because I grew up with soccer. It occupied a large portion of my life. A lot of my friends played through high school and all that. Uh, rec leagues, I coached a little bit in rec leagues too. And you played through high school, right? I did play don't through high school. Short, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, I don't really follow any team. I don't have a team, and the MLS is there, and I don't have a team. But news today said that the MLS is going to have a New York City team. Now, they have a New York team now that plays in New Jersey because that's just what New York teams do for whatever reason. But the Manchester City of the English Premier League is going to own a team with the Yankees, which I think is actually kind of cool. Um they're going to be called the New York City Football Club, and I don't, like I said, I don't watch soccer, but the fact that it's doing fairly well, I guess that's relative. I read something on Wikipedia that only like three or four teams in that league are profitable, but there are now 20 teams in the league. The New York City Soccer Club, or Football Club, will become the 20th team uh, in the league that started with 10 in 1996, so good. If the biggest market in the world's going to get a soccer team football team if you're a euro then then good I, I can get behind that a little bit and maybe i'll even watch a game or two yeah you know i love the international soccer events but i've yeah, never yeah. gotten into the club soccer and i don't know why necessarily i haven't either maybe i always just thought or maybe just assumed that because it's mls it's just probably not as good because if you were really good you'd probably play in the english premier league or one of those other leagues over there, but maybe it's uh, coming around a little bit. Maybe they're if they can get some talent here. I mean, they got Beckham at the end of his career, and they I mean they have some name recognition there. If they can get some actual, maybe some homegrown talent there, maybe that maybe it'll put it over the top. Twenty teams. They've only folded two teams in the in the league's history too. So yeah, not my, bad. My second thing: uh, another year without a triple crown this year. Yeah, disappointingly so. Um, there was a lot of talk about Orb being a legitimate, real deal triple crown type of horse and at post time I think he was a 3-5 to five favorite to win uh, the Preakness on Saturday and that essentially means that you need to bet $5 to win 3 <laughs> and um, it didn't happen Oxbow, who was one of the favorites in the Derby uh, ended up running a great race and basically winning from beginning to end, leading the whole thing, essentially. And um, as a horse racing fan, I'm a three-race-a-year guy. Right, right. But for some reason, when the third race doesn't have a horse who's already won two, I might kind of get downgraded to a a two-race-a-year guy. I actually forgot about the second race because I think this happens to me every year. It's so soon after the Kentucky. Was it one week later? I think it's two Two and then three, right? Okay, so I always forget that second one. And usually you're reminded of the third one because there is a A chance chance of the triple triple crown. crown. And uh, it's Belmont, New York City, that kind of thing. The... I actually had two friends, a guy and his girlfriend, both win the Superfecta on this. I saw that. But it was a 10-cent Superfecta. I didn't know you could bet that. So your bet is something like, what would that be? If you bet it box, it's like 12 possible chances. So it's like something like a dollar twenty or something like that. I think that's a special for, like, I don't think you can do that any race. No. I think it's kind of like right, they make right. that available as like a bonus to bet it. But boy, had they bet like a buck a piece on those, they would have had they would have had some money. 
Yeah, and as it is with the ten set bets, they won they close won like, to three hundred or yeah, something. Yeah, three four hundred bucks, something like that. So, I guess that's fun if you want to try to make. I guess your odds are better than playing the lotto. Yeah, I've bet on both races this year and and lost every bet. I haven't lost more than twenty five bucks right, combined, right. but it's fun. Horse racing is fun, and I'm disappointed that. There's not going to be a chance at the Triple Crown this year, but that doesn't necessarily rule me out for Belmont. I, I hopefully uh, still go down to the OTB and play some bets for fun and watch it. And, you know, Does Tammy wear a big hat? Or is that a derby That's thing That's the only? derby thing. Just the derby? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, my last thing this week. The Charlotte Bobcats will now be the Charlotte Hornets again because the New Orleans Hornets – are going to be the New Orleans Pelicans. Pelicans, right. So, uh... Why does just, that mean that Charlotte has to change their name? They just want to get back to the They just want to. I think okay. because they have a lousy team as the uh, Bobcats. They've had a pretty lousy run. And, I don't know. Maybe, they want the nostalgia Yeah, of it, the or? purple and blue starter jacket days of Alonzo Mourning and Larry Johnson. Right. I know a lot of, like, girls my age and stuff like those jackets because of the colors, so... Yeah, I don't know. Cool, I guess. Really weird. Yeah. Uh, almost as weird as the NFL's decision this week, my last thing, to move the draft to May. Why do they want to do this? My thought, my only thought as far as why that could be is they want to really stick it to other sports. Uh, if they can have that on, when does it start now? Thursday. So you got that on a Thursday and a Friday, and then Saturday during the day. That's going to probably, I shouldn't even say probably, the Thursday night one is definitely going to beat out any NBA or NHL playoffs that right. night. So they want to stick it to one night of NHL. I always feel like those last couple weeks to the draft is forever. Yeah. And now there's going to be five of those weeks? Free agency still going to start. What is They it, are the going to adjust the, the league year. They're going to start the league year before the combine. Oh, okay. But... Um, I don't know that I'm that excited about this switching to me. I kind of liked it where it was. Yeah, as a sports fan, I mean, I can watch hockey tonight and not worry. I don't have to choose between hockey and football or hockey and football and basketball. And then when football is drafting, I don't think there's anything else on. Maybe. Well, in normal years, the NHL playoffs usually had started by the well, middle of April. Well, that's true. This year it was late. Right. But, um, so there was that piece of news. And then also the news today that Super Bowl 50 is going to be in San Francisco. Okay. And Super Bowl 51 is going to be in Houston. Oh, Houston. (laughs) Uh, Snubbed again. Yeah, and Miami is the team that's not happy about it. Um, They hoped to get one of these. They didn't. And the reason is because their stadium isn't any good. And the people there voted against a proposal to upgrade it with public money. Oh, okay. So that means we're set through the 2016 season with Super Bowls. It's going to be in New York City next year. Then it's going to be in Arizona in 2015. Uh, 2016 will be in San Francisco or Santa Clara, California. And 2017 will be in Houston. Yeah, now I'm going to totally butcher this, but I kind of hate the idea that football stadiums are funded with public money. Uh, they I think claim- the only one that wasn't funded with some public money is Cowboys Stadium, right? Every other one has at least been funded yeah. with some portion of public that, money. That might be right. And I, but somebody wrote an article, maybe in Forbes or something like that, going a year or two back now, that said, like, these owners in that will argue, well, if we have the stadium, like, it's always talked about here because the Bills Stadium, if you don't know, is an Orchard Park, which is like a suburb, like, 
Yeah, it's not in not the city. a city at all. So people will argue, well, if you build a stadium in the city, it'll bring business. But they've said that that's someone did an article or a study on that and said that that's not true at all. That it doesn't really help businesses a lot. Now I'm sure it would help businesses like the restaurant that your mom works at near the stadium, but. I mean, there's studies that have shown that they don't overwhelmingly help. So these owners who are cajillionaires as it is should just pay the money. Do the, do their own stadium. Don't make me do your dirty work. Tough spot, but it does mean that Miami isn't going to get a Super Bowl, which I would guess does have an impact on a local economy when you're talking about an event a like Super that. A Super Bowl, sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Houston you know, so. has a roof, right? Yes. Does San Francisco? Uh, no, it's a brand new stadium, and I don't. It's going to be a brand new stadium, and there is there's no roof. What's your thought about rain? Like, would rain wreck a Super Bowl? Like, because I know they're totally against playing it in the snow or anything. Well, it didn't wreck it in Miami, or did it? I mean, it rained the whole Super Bowl. Peyton Manning beat the Bears. Oh, that's right, it did. You know, and that was in Miami. So, yeah, I guess if anything, that probably helped the Bears, and it didn't help the Bears. So, right. All right, we are going to uh, come right back with Kenny Albert. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of New York University. He has called hockey games for the Baltimore Skipjacks, Washington Capitals, the NHL on ESPN2, NHL Radio, and the NHL on Fox. Also, the New York Rangers and the last three Winter Olympics. Since 1994, he has called NFL football games for Fox. And since 2007, he has worked on one of the network's top broadcast teams with Daryl Johnson and Tony Saragusa. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to the always awesome Kenny Albert. How's it going, Kenny? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Doing very good. Um, I want to start you off with a couple kind of generic ones. First being, how do you think the playoffs has been this year coming off a 48-game season as opposed to what it's normally like coming off the longer 82-game grind that the players are kind of used to? Yeah, I don't think there's really been much of a difference. I was thinking about that earlier today, the fact that no one really brings up the lockout doesn't seem to have had any effects. So, you know, I think we saw back in 95 when the Devils won the Cup, sweeping the Red Wings in the finals, uh, coming off the lockout-shortened season, 48-game regular season as well. And uh, this is really the first time since then that we've had a, a similar type situation. But uh, I, don't, I don't think it's really had much of an impact at all. What about – I thought of this – I wasn't going to mention it, but I was watching the Blackhawks and the Red Wings just before we did this. And there was a, a call on one end with, with the Blackhawks maybe getting away with one, and then it, there's a goal by Kane, and then they come back the other way, and uh, they disallow a Blackhawks goal, and you know Twitter's going crazy, oh, it's a makeup call, and there's just been all this talk. It, it probably happens every year, but it just seems more when you're in it about the officiating and the way NHL games are officiated in the playoffs as compared to the regular season, and also even in different moments in games, like the way it's officiated in in the uh, beginning of the game as opposed to overtime. And you had some, some controversial calls in that Washington Rangers series with Ovechkin comes to mind. What do you think about the way the game is being officiated in the playoffs and the way things have gone so far? Well, I don't really have much of a problem with the officiating. I think they have such a hard job to do, and, and we have the benefit of so much technology now. You know, We could see replays from 10 or 12 different angles, and these guys have to make decisions at, at such a high speed, and they have to make decisions right away. And I'm not only talking about the hockey referees, but baseball umpires and officials in football and basketball. So they're right 99.5% of the time. And I think because of technology, we get to see 
some of the, the plays over and over, but uh, I, I have no problem with it at all. Would you be in favor of any kind of like coaches challenge system in the NHL like we have in football? Maybe. I mean, you don't want the games to be extended too long, and I think in, in football, you know, they've gotten it down to a science. So, you know, maybe if you put one or two coaches' challenges in per game, but I think the league also does a great job, you know, in, in, in goal situations, you know, by heading up to the uh, NHL Situation Room in Toronto. They, they, they've gotten it down to a science as well. So, uh, you know, down the line, perhaps, that would, that would be the way to go with the coaches' challenge. You call so many big events every year. Huge NFL football games, playoff games, you know, baseball games. You've called basketball games. What is an NHL playoff game? Where where does that rank in your? I know you're a big hockey guy, so maybe higher than most people who I would ask this question to. But where does an NHL playoff game rank in terms of getting the juice flowing for Kenny Albert and calling a game? Oh, it's great. I mean, you know, the atmosphere in so many of these buildings, especially in the playoffs. You know, Madison Square Garden, obviously, and the TD Garden in Boston during this round, but. You know, the Nassau Coliseum, I called a couple of the Islander-Penguin games in the first round. Uh, the Consol Energy Center in Pittsburgh. Really, wherever you go in the playoffs, the fans are going to be fired up. The buildings are sold out. So it's uh, it's tremendous. And, and, you know, I've worked some big NFL playoff games as well, as you mentioned, at, you know, Soldier Field and uh, Lambeau Field, among others. So uh, uh, the excitement level certainly is raised come playoff time. But there's really nothing like playoff hockey, even in the first round. Um when, when there are still 16 teams alive, the, the games are just so exciting, especially when you get down the stretch into the third period and in overtime. So, uh, you know, football playoff games also, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to call five of them, and uh, they've been a great, you know, great experience, tremendous atmosphere in, in all of the stadiums. But uh, the, the Stanley Cup playoffs are so much fun. And, you know, it's a, it's a grind. It's, it's hectic for the teams and the players. You know, we saw the – game six and seven back-to-back in a couple of the series in the first round. I don't know how the players do it. You know, I know how, uh, how, how you know, emotional fans and, and broadcasters get, and, and, you know, you almost feel like you played after the game, and, and the players go out there on a night-in, night-out basis and, and do such a tremendous job. You did also, you didn't mention it, but you did call one of the great NFL playoff games of the last 20 years with that Saints and 49ers game. I know we talked about it a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the great events you called, but it's interesting you mentioned the um, the emotion of the announcers because I was thinking about this when I knew I was going to talk to you and about if it's something that crosses your mind or something you think about. The guy a couple boxes next to you, he's a, a polarizing figure, and I'm talking about Jack Edwards, the uh, voice of the Bruins, and he had a great night. <laughs> I mean, anytime you you see a team that you call and you're, you're you're at the level of emotional attachment that he seems to have for the Bruins, and they come back with three goals and the great call of the overtime goal and the the video of it that surfaced on YouTube or whatever. I don't know if you've seen it with him. And the do you, do you ever think about how there's another guy calling this game and and you know I don't want to say it's a rivalry between you guys like there is on the ice, but do you ever think about that like oh wow there's going to be a big call and and people are going to be able to hear it from my point of view and also through Jack's and some might be for the Rangers. Some might be for Boston. Does that play in at all? Right. Well, actually Jack's not calling the series because the local TV crews don't do oh, he's not uh, doing from any the of second round either. on. So it's ah. Dave Gosher, who's the radio uh, play-by-play announcer for the Bruins, who's in the booth to our left. And then the NBC booth is to our right. So but even that's one of the benefits of, of working radio is that you go all the way through with your team in the Stanley cup playoffs. So Jack Edwards with the Bruins and Sam Rosen with the Rangers, they don't work this series and won't work, you know, the rest of the playoffs right. as, as far as doing play-by-play for their team. But, um, you know, I know all those guys, and I'm, I'm friendly with a lot of them, and, 
with Washington. It was John Walton in the first round and Joe Beninati and Craig Lachlan on the TV side and now Dave Gosher. So I wouldn't say there's really a rivalry between the broadcasters, but you certainly spend time with them before the game, exchanging notes and uh, talking about their teams. We see them at the morning skates. So uh, uh, they're all good guys, and, and we've developed really relationships with all of them through the years. It's amazing how many great announcers there are in the NHL on the radio side. You know, Lang and Pittsburgh and Jenna Rad, who does TV and radio in Buffalo, and, and yourself and Jack. And wow, hockey, I mean, with the radio, it's pretty huge. Kind of like baseball, you know, you think of that quite a bit. And even football, too, does uh, the local broadcast there. A couple uh, more specific things about the Rangers, and then we're going to have to let you go. Kenny Albert, um, at Kenny Albert on Twitter. Uh, what do you think about Torts? Is he in any trouble if they don't turn this around at all, do you think? No, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, when you look at his body of work over the last, especially the last two years, you know, reaching the conference finals and getting to the second round this year, and obviously the goal for the Rangers is still to advance past the Bruins. They're in an 0-2 hole now, but uh, no, I think when you look at his body of work, I don't think there's any way that uh, there would be a move made. Um, you know, he's, he's pretty happy with how the team's played, especially in Game 2. I was up at his press conference today after practice, and he felt that in Game 1 the score was probably not indicative. He thought that Game 1 the team did not play very well, but Game 2, aside from mistakes on the third and fourth goals, he was pretty happy with what they did over the first two periods, and I would have to agree, but Tuka Rask was outstanding. Mm-hmm. You know, played a tremendous game and goal for the Bruins, and you know the Rangers have to score on the power play. They're 0 for 8 now in this series and 2 for 36 in the playoffs, so... You know, if they want to get back into the series, I think the power play and, and goaltending certainly have to be two of the keys. What would you do with Brad Richards? Well, I think John Tortorella, you know, what we've seen him do is, is probably uh, where Brad Richards, you know, sl- should be slotted in right now. He's, he's the fourth-line center. He's only played about 10 minutes a game. And when you look down the middle at Derek Broussard and Derek Stepan and Brian Boyle, uh, they're all playing well. And uh, Brad Richards has moved down to the fourth line prior to game six against Washington. He's been there for the last four games. So based on what's taking place on the ice, I I think he's in the right spot. What about Torts and Hagelin and the playoff uh, power play controversy and him only getting a little bit of time and what do you say stinks like about five times to describe Hagelin on the power play? What have you seen watching Hagelin's game and his lack of uh, chances to really prove himself on a power play like you said that has really struggled in the playoffs well i understand what Tortorella was saying I, I probably wouldn't have used that word um but you know Haglund through his two seasons hasn't seen much power play time in 112 regular season games he has exactly one point on the power play and i, I see what Tortorella was getting to with the fact that he's such a fast guy that he's almost going too fast uh, on the power play and he's one of the rangers most important players you know when you watch him at even strength use his speed to get into the opposition zone. You know, he, he's one of their key guys. Uh, Zuccarello's similar with, with his speed, but uh, I can kind of see what the head coach is saying. However, he did use him on the power play yesterday. He was out there for the last 30 or 45 seconds of, of one of the power plays. So, you know, I, I think at this point he'll probably try anything, given the two for 36, and maybe we'll see a little bit more of Carl Hagen on the power play tomorrow as well. All right, we'll kind of leave you with this. Obviously, the Rangers are a veteran team, an experienced team, and that goes with being the Rangers. They always have veteran, high-priced players like Nash, who finally got his first goal, and Richards, who he mentioned. And to get back in this series, they're going to need 
the best players to be best players that, you know, we're going to need to see big performances just from here on out from Lundqvist. And, you know, Nash is going to have to be good, like you said, and the power play will have to be better. What's something maybe off the radar that the Rangers need to do better or do to get back into this series and push Boston and maybe even ultimately upset them? Right. You know, it's hard to say, Steve, if there's anything that's really off the radar at this point because we've, we've seen them play nine games in the playoffs now, the first two games against Boston. So I don't really know if there are any surprises. I really think that Lundquist and the power play will be the key tomorrow. I think they'll get some momentum from playing at home. They've won nine straight home games now, six in the regular season, three in the playoff series against Washington. So hopefully the home crowd gives them a lift. And I think it's a positive that Callahan and Nash were among their best players yesterday. I think Nash has been real good for four games now, finally scored a goal yesterday. Callahan was real solid. So, um, you know, I think when you look at the defensemen, and, you know, he had Girardi and McDonough split up for the first two games, and I understand why, because that's the route they went for many games during the regular season when the opposition had two top lines, like the Bruins do, and, you know, it hasn't really worked as well over these last two games. Girardi on the ice for all five Boston goals yesterday, and Delzato on the ice for four. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see as the home team with the last, you know, line change with the matchups if he does use Girardi and, and McDonough at all more together tomorrow than he has over the first two games. They do say no need to panic until you lose a home game in these series. Kenny Albert, thank you very much for a few minutes and what I know is a busy time of the year for you. Thank you very much. Steve, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Anytime. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Kenny Albert for being on the show. Always a great time when we get Kenny on, and always appreciate his enthusiasm not only to come on but to uh, anticipate coming on again. He's always very, <laughs> very uh, open in saying I'll be excited to come back. So Kenny will be back soon, I'm sure. Um, for the book club today, something a little bit different. The second show back, we had a guy named Ed Cunningham on the program, who is a college football analyst for ESPN and on the side he is a producer of documentary films and he's produced two incredible ones uh, The King of Kong Fistful of Quarters which is about video games and records trying to be set on video games and also a documentary about a high school football team called Undefeated which won the Academy Award that year for best documentary film yeah yeah he has a new project coming out, and we're going to be plugging this in this section for the next couple of weeks for a few reasons. One is because Ed did us a great solid coming on, and two, because one of the guys behind this project is an even better friend of the show, and that's the Blue Horseshoe, Zach Rosenfield, oh. uh, who is doing the PR for this project. And the project is a new film called Finders Keepers, and it's about a severed human foot that was discovered in a grill bought at a North Carolina auction. <laughs> what? Right. And it says it only gets stranger from there. Wow. The film uh, has taken the Veronica Mars route, as Ed mentioned when he was on here, yeah. and they have a Kickstarter. Um, the problem with Kickstarter, as I see it so far, is that it's not easy to give out a Kickstarter address. There's no like Kickstarter slash Finders Keepers. So just you know, search for Finders Keepers? You have keepers? to search for Finders Keepers, or you can search for Brian Careberry, who is the other producer of the film, and that's B-R-Y-A-N-C-A-R-B-E-R-R-Y. But I think the best way to do it 
is to just just search simply finders keepers. It comes right, right up. They're looking for eighty grand. Uh, they've made sixteen thousand three hundred of that in the first couple of days. So doing pretty well. And I know they did a lot of media today. They're going to be on Colin Coward and doing something with the postgame.com and a few other uh, places where they were going to promote this. They also have a Facebook page set up. Um, and you can like the Facebook page. And that does have a real slick address. It's just facebook.com slash documentary. So you can go to the, um, to the, uh, the Facebook page and like that. I know they want to build that up. And they also have a Twitter set up. Uh, the Twitter is... just says, spread the word on our Twitter, Facebook, or your blog. Liking us on Facebook. Finderskeepersdoc at gmail.com is the email address. And uh, I, I think it's a great project. I think just mentioning that there's a potential foot amputated from someone that was found in a grill... <laughs> Sparks a little, a little bit of interest, and, and the prizes that they have for backing it are great. They got some really cool stuff related to the guy's other docks. You could even go as far as, if you have this kind of dough, I would say do it. Uh, 10000 bucks will get you a, an executive producer credit. Sweet. And you'd be on IMDb and everything, and you'd be invited to do two rough cuts of the film. But you can, bet a, you can, you can donate a buck as well. And what does that get you? Buck doesn't get you anything. To get something, you need to donate. Gotcha. Uh, ten? Ten. Actually, if you pledge one dollar or more, you have a listen to the actual recording of Shannon's call to 911 after finding the leg. It's even better than you imag- imagine. <laughs> so right. you do get something That's for not bad. pledging a buck. And if you pledge ten, you win the live online broadcast complete with a question and answer. And you get recognition, recognition on the website. Um, so that's not even a bad deal for ten bucks. Twenty bucks you get, or for thirty bucks you get a digital copy of the film that you can keep, and for fifty you get the hard copy DVD autographed. Yeah, whatnot. they might they might not have a Twitter for the group. I'm looking at this here. It says consider this spreading the word by sharing this page or our video on Twitter. Oh, they, they okay. don't actually list their. So Twitter. right now they just have a Facebook and a email and the Kickstarter. Yeah, I'm sure maybe the individual guys have Twitter accounts, but I know Ed doesn't. Ed does not. Okay, right. But um, either way, you can find enough about it here. Oh yeah. So, and if you're a fan of documentaries, and if you're a fan of the two that these people have created already, I've seen the King of Kong, and I loved it. I haven't seen Undefeated, but I knew it was critically acclaimed, and, and it was great. Yeah, I loved it. I can give it my, I guess, stamp of approval for whatever that means. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a great project, and we're behind it, and we'll mention it a couple times on the show. And best of luck to Ed and. To the Blue Horseshoe, Jackie yeah. Score, and everyone involved. And hopefully we can get a couple pledges from Sportscasters listeners. There you go. All right, we'll be right back with Ben Ryder from uh, Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. Playing in an overtime game, and especially on this scale, what's it like inside the minds of the goaltenders? Well, they know that they got to be sure. If, they, if they're going to have any opportunity to freeze a puck, freeze it. If they're going to have a chance to deflect the puck in the corner, they got to do it. Here's a chance, and a score! Yale has done it! Our next guest is from South Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. 
Today he is a staff writer for Sports Illustrated where he covers baseball, football, and spent the summer of 2010 covering the World Cup soccer tournament. He often writes the Inside Baseball column at the beginning of the magazine and you can find his writing on SI.com where he most recently wrote about the debut of some of baseball's top prospects. He's making his fourth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? Hey, man, I'm very impressed by your technological expertise there with that intro. I just nailed that, huh? You killed it, absolutely. Yeah, I was nervous. I thought I'd screw it up for sure, but... Um, <laughs> got on the, just so everybody knows, that, that was the first try as well. No practice at all. Yeah, I thought for sure. I asked for a mulligan ahead of time because I thought for sure I'd need it, but I nailed it. When I, I, did, I had Wertheim on I, a couple weeks ago, and I did a similar thing, and I blew it the first mm-hmm. time. Totally blew it. I mean, brutal. <laughs> but... Uh, Thanks, Thanks for treating me better than you did, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, I have the uh, executive editor of the magazine on. I blow it, you know, and then uh, I, no, no, no disregard to you. I, I'm thrilled to have you today, but you know, you know, when the big yeah. guys in the room, you blow it, and you know, uh, less pressure, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Yale grad, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but my brother. <laughs> it's funny because uh, someone had said to me on on Twitter. They asked if how many straight podcasts I could bring up the fact that my brother won the national championship with the Yale hockey team. But um, as an alum, uh, pump you up at all? Uh, did you follow the team this year or see any of the Frozen Four games? Or that I know you're busy with baseball, kind of going right around opening day was the Frozen Four, or maybe the second week of the season. But um, what are your thoughts on the university you went to, an Ivy League school winning a national championship in 2013? Well, there were some dark years there for the hockey team when I was when I was a, a student. Uh, so I think that this kind of took a lot of people by surprise, you know. Um, but I think that a lot of people started following it as they kind of went through the tournament, you know, like, can this be real? Is this actually happening? And then by the time it came, uh, when it came time for us to face off against our crosstown rival Quinnipiac, I think that not only the fact that they were in the championship game, but they're playing this this team that's like a few miles away in New Haven. Um, pretty fantastic, and you know when they actually won, you know, I think I think I think everybody's pretty pretty much on board by the time that happens. Yeah, a pretty surreal experience um, straight through from from beginning to end. And it's interesting how you mentioned uh, the kind of like wondering if it's real. And I swear when it was, I think it was four nothing with about seven minutes left. I, I think I spent the whole seven minutes trying to convince myself it was real, but um. <laughs> Anyway, uh, excited to have you on the show today. I mean, you've been killing it this year. Um, we were talking about before we started, I was telling you how much I really liked your article. And I'm going to blow it because I don't speak Spanish. I'm kind of like uh, Will Ferrell and Anchorman. Um, but uh, your article about Cespedes, Jonas Cespedes? That, yeah, Jonas Cespedes. Yeah, just uh, really, a, you, you killed it there. And, and you told a story that I... I wasn't ready to know really anything about that story, and you really—I mean, I knew—I knew about Cespedes and and the, some of the great hitting he's been doing over the last year and a half. But you, you lose perspective, I think, about what a change in life it can be. And, and kind of another funny story: I live in, in Buffalo, and I think about 1992, we hosted this thing called the World University Games, and uh, my dad took me to a baseball game at the um, at the for for the tournament. It was Cuba versus the USA. And I tell you no lie, I'm sitting there, 12 years old, me and my dad. USA player hits a fly ball to center field. Center fielder turns around, starts running for it, hops over the outfield fence, runs up the hill, and gets in a car on the throughway and defected. 
No way. Right in the middle of the game in front of everyone, just like that. Ran back for the foul ball, didn't catch it, let it hit the ground, jumped over the fence. There's a little hill, then you can get on the thruway, and you can be in Canada in less than five minutes. And this guy was in the car, into Canada, and gone from Cuba just like that. Huh. It was incredible. the most. I have, to look, have to look that up. Maybe that sounds like a good feature unto itself. It's one of those things that, like, if it was today, would be like, you know, three million hits on YouTube. You know, because someone would have got it yeah. on their cell phone or something, you know, but. But um, I think we lose we lose kind of perspective on on how difficult it can be for someone to leave a place like Cuba and come to the United States and and leave what I mean I I think if I were to say go somewhere and leave my family behind and my life behind and try to adjust to a new country where I don't speak the language and have the pressure of trying to be a professional athlete it could be very difficult. Right. Well, you know the. Cespedes story was one that I was kind of working on for a good two months, obviously working on other things in between there. But picking up pieces all over spring training, you know, really started um, when we do this thing at the magazine where we talk to professional advanced scouts to kind of get their, you know, anonymous um, views on players for the upcoming season, who's looking good in spring training, who's looking bad. And I had guys telling me, oh, this Seth Benish, and everybody knows he had a good rookie year last year. They're watching him. They're, they're comparing him with guys like Bo Jackson. You know, one said he's the new Willie Mays. Right. And, like, scouts as a whole don't tend to exaggerate too much. Like, they get excited about some guys, but it's kind of their job to play it down the middle and give, you know, kind of accurate uh, predictions and comparisons and stuff. But these guys are just going crazy about Seth so, you know, I was like, huh, I mean, there's, you know, there's definitely something here. So he kind of started talking to people about him, and the general consensus was that he was just absolutely the real deal. Um, you know, talked to the A's, talked to Brian Cash and the Yankees, Ben Charrington. Um, and then kind of from there, there were two things you started to wonder. You know, one is, what is this guy's personal story? You know, kind of everything he went through to, you know, leave the only country he's ever known and his you know, family and all that stuff. Um, for the great unknown in the U.S., you know, why did he do that? Uh, what was that all about? And two, how did it end up that he became a member of the Oakland A's of all teams? Right. You know, this is a team that has, you know, the lowest payroll. Everybody knows that. Um, you know, how was it that the A's were the ones, at the end of the day, who essentially outbid every other team in baseball by giving him a four-year, $36 million contract um, essentially for a guy who's never played an inning in the U.S. And beyond that, how was it that it looks like they were right to do so? Yeah, you know, if I was – this is something I, I thought of when I was reading your piece when you were talking about how the A's were the team that landed them. If a team like Oakland is willing to take a $34 million risk on a guy like that, it would almost make me question, well, maybe I should take a $40 million risk. You know, because the yeah. A's don't have $36 million to be wrong. You know what I mean? And if they're yeah. willing to take that kind of risk, it almost throws a flag up a pole for me saying, well, if I'm said team and my payroll is this percentage more than them, maybe I should take that percentage more of a risk and see if we can bring him in. You know, you're right. And, I mean, that's one of the problems with this thing is that now that they did it and they were right, you know, probably the market for these guys is already inflated. You know, they're probably not going to be able to do this again. Uh, with the next, say, Cuban guy who comes over. 
But, you know, the interesting thing that the A's guys said to me, especially uh, Farhan Zaidi, who's this Ph.D. from Cal Berkeley. They've had on their staff for nine years. Brilliant guy, um, very nice guy. Uh, he's their director of baseball operations now. He was saying that you'd think that the A's kind of have to play it safe, spend less than everybody else just by virtue of, you know, their financial resources. But they actually have to play it the other way, in his view. They have to engage what he calls high-variant strategies, which essentially means that they have to take on risk, in their view, more risk than any other team if they want to contend, right? He says that they just play it down the middle, you know, you know, just pay what you think they can pay budget-wise. They're simply always going to get beat out for the same players by teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox and everybody else. They're just going to have a subpar roster, and they're just going to lose. Their only chance is to bet big, to go all in, um, when they have reason to believe that they should do so. Um, in this case, after you know three years of working on this guy, as I detail in the story, they didn't miss an international tournament in which he played yeah. for three years. They didn't miss a single at bat. On this guy, they felt confident based on that and some statistical modeling they did that this was a good bet. You know, the other side of the coin there, though, is would this have worked as well if it was in another market? You know, we've seen the Yankees pay the big bucks sometimes for the imports or a team like the Red Sox. And the pressure can get so intense in those markets that that added thing with the stuff we were talking about earlier, leaving your life, leaving your country, it can be too much. And I wonder if this was just the perfect spot where the pressure was a little bit off and, and he actually had a teammate there who came from a similar background that he can bond with, something else that you detailed really well in the story. What do you think about that, the other side of that, that maybe this wouldn't have worked somewhere else? Um, well, that's a great point you make about the A's having this kind of built-in support system because they had a coach in their minor leagues called Ariel Prieto who defected, or he actually left Cuba, he didn't have to defect, in 1995, ended up pitching for the A's for a few years. Um, when they signed Cespedes, they called him up and said, basically, you are his guy, you're going to be his translator, you're going to be his kind of cultural translator as well. So that helped. But I actually think that Cespedes would have been successful no matter what market he went to. Right, just I mean, that kind seems of like a, He seems like a guy who's very, just very athletically skilled, as, you know, Anybody who hasn't seen this 20-minute video that his people in the Dominican Republic, which is where he went immediately after Cuba, released um, you know, in the months before he ended up signing in Oakland, has to watch it. It's called Ioannis uh, Cespedes La Potentia, 20 minutes long. He does ridiculous stuff like leg press 1,300 pounds and you know, jump on top of ridiculously high boxes and things like that. It's pretty amusing. So I think that his athletic skills would play. Um, I also just think he has this kind of like confidence that all great athletes do. Um, I think that uh, he would have been fine. The one way the market did help the A's is that in the past, you know, they've made pretty good offers to certain free agents. You know, Adrian Beltre is one who they tried to get twice, who springs to mind. They just didn't want to go to Oakland. You know, the stadium is bad. You know, they play before empty house a lot of the time. You don't know if the team's going to compete. They had trouble drawing guys to Oakland, even with you know pretty competitive offers. You know, a guy coming from Cuba, he doesn't know what Oakland is, right? He 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 doesn't care. He just wants to come over here and play. Um, so that was another reason why they were able to get Cespedes because he didn't have all these preconceived notions. 
before he ended up on the team. You know, another thing that this column kind of got me thinking about was there was a period there, maybe towards the end of the steroid era, where I was a little bored in a sense with baseball. I mean, I love baseball, and, and mm-hmm. it, it's not to say that I wasn't watching. I mean, this is, you know, right around the time where, you know, the Yes Network and SNI, SNY were popping up, and there was more baseball to be had than before growing up in Buffalo. It was pretty much the Braves and then whatever ESPN show, and that was it. Uh, but it seems like in the last couple of years, with the influx of young, exciting, unbelievable talent, it's there couldn't be a, a better point to be following baseball right now. I mean, just look at your magazine. I mean, last week, you know, Harvey is Matt Harvey's on the cover. I mean, every five days, the Mets are like you'd think that they were going to go 162 and 0. The the spotlight that's on his starts, and I mean, last year we had maybe the best two rookies, rookie of the years. I can ever remember the AL and NL Rookie of the Year being as big a profile players as they were. I mean, what do you think about, as someone who's covering the game, what an exciting time it is based on the, just the level of talent that's coming in? No, you're, you're right about that. And, you know, one guy that's kind of flying under the radar overshadowed a bit by Trout and Harper is Manny Machado on the Orioles. You know, everybody thought when they called him up last year, you know, oh, too early, what are they doing? You know, he hit pretty well, played terrific third base. Really, I don't think they would have, you know, made the playoffs without that move. And now you look up every night and the guy's, you know, like three for five with three doubles. I mean, just, you're right. There's a lot of real precocious talent out there. Um, and I think beyond that, what the talent does is it has the ability to just change a franchise in an instant almost. I mean, if we talk about Seth Bettis, you know, he's over the last, you know, year and, and the first quarter of this season – He's missed a few, a little bit of time with some hand injury, things like that. Um, and obviously this doesn't say at all, but when he's been in the lineup, the A's are 102 and 59. Oh. I just looked it up before we got on the phone. When he's not in the lineup, they're 16 and 31. Uh, that's as of Tuesday, right? So obviously there's a lot of things that can go into that, but baseline is that this guy is just an impact player on this team. He's a, he's a team changer. Um, as are a lot of these other guys like you know Harper and Machado and Trout, although in the Angels' case, um, even Mike Trout doesn't seem to be able to, to save them so far this year anyway. Right. And, I mean, the pitchers, too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Moore is 23, I believe. He's 8-0. Um, help me out with the Arizona pitcher. Um, 7-0. and oh, Why is his name slipping my mind? He's 23, too, though. Um, uh-huh. Oh, Miley? Corbin, which one are you talking Corbin, about? Corbin, exactly. Okay. So I mean, those two kids are twenty-three, you know, uh, and they're and of course uh, Strasburg. We're kind of all over the place here, but I mean, mm-hmm. the prospects. I, I can't remember a time, at least in my life. I'm only thirty-two. I mean, it's not like I've been watching baseball for sixty years, but I can't remember a time where we could literally probably name ten guys, maybe more, who are in the first five years of their career. That I mean, we would probably both pay a hundred bucks to go watch tomorrow if we could. Right. I mean, it's, you know, Jose Fernandez on the Marlins, um, another guy, you know, everyone's like, what the heck are the Marlins doing? They're terrible, and they're calling up this 20-year-old pitcher. But he's certainly holding his own. Uh, and then there's Shelby Miller on the Cardinals, who's, you know, right now far and away the leader for Rookie of the Year in the NL. Um, so, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there's just a lot of these young guys who seem to be better prepared uh, for the rigors of Major League life than than perhaps the generation that preceded them. 
And that's an incredible segue, thank you, cause, because you spent some time, and you're going to have a, an article in this week's SI about the St. Louis pitching staff, and you mentioned Miller. And tell me a little bit about, maybe preview the article a little bit for us. What am I going to, if I were to do this interview next week, what were some of the things that I might want to talk to you about because I don't have that benefit this week? So you have to, you have to drive us there. All right, well, so this story kind of came about, you know, we're just thinking about the Cardinals. You know, the Cardinals have lost so many guys. Well, they haven't lost, but the team has, has turned over more significantly than even we realized, you know, since just 19 months ago when they won the World Series. You know, when I was there in the clubhouse last week, there were nine guys in uniform who were on the 25-man roster in 2011. Wow. Nine, right? That's significant turnover. Obviously, there's some injuries thrown in there and things like that. But at the end of the day, they're back in first place, the best record in the National League, again. And it, it goes back way before that, you know. Like, since 1960, this is a team that has experienced back-to-back losing seasons one time in 94 and 95, all right? That, that's, a, that's something that no other team can say. You know, the Yankees can't say that. They, they had at least two strings of three straight losing seasons since then. No other team can say that. So you kind of start thinking about the Cardinals. You know, how have they established this tradition in the extreme long term of just being there each and every year? Um, and then we started to kind of look inside that and think, what exactly has allowed them to do this? You know, what part of their team? We really zeroed in on the pitching. You know, the, the pitching staff, the rotation in particular, is currently leading um, the major leagues in ERA by more than by nearly 20 percent over the Reds. They're kind of almost threatening the uh, full-season record, which is also held by the Cardinals, that was set back in 1968 when they had Bob Gibson in a mound that was five inches higher. Uh, so this thing is just really leading the way, wow. um, and it kind of nicely plays into the story. Um, well, in a way, I'll get to in a second. But, you know, kind of for the past ten years, as everybody knows, the Cardinals got by thanks in large measure to Dave Duncan, the pitching coach, Hall of Fame pitching coach he's going to be, who was kind of the master of the two-seam fastball, which he'd get guys to throw pitches that essentially sunk in the zone, pound the zone, the idea that batters would hit the ball into the ground, ground out, ground out. They lead the league in ground ball rate every year. But now they're kind of evolving where they've drafted all these superpower arms, you know, Shelby Miller, Lance Lynn, a lot of more guys in the system. And now they're kind of a hybrid staff they got the power guys, and they also have the sinker ball guys, and this is clearly working very well um, in today's baseball landscape. You know, it's unbelievable. You talk about the Cardinals. I mean, this is a, a franchise that, I mean, they have 11 World Series championships, arguably the second most successful franchise in the history of baseball. And they're a team, like you said, that can turn over a roster in such a short period of time and do it so successfully. And there's so many other franchises out there. Like we were talking, uh, me and one of the hockey guys were talking a couple of weeks ago about this kid named J.T. Miller, who was born in 1993 in Pittsburgh, right? Born and raised in Pittsburgh, and in his lifetime, from 1993 to December of last year, he was able to be born, learn how to play hockey, win a gold medal for Team USA Under-20s, become a National Hockey League player, score two goals in Madison Square Garden, all of that with two years extra, less, two years less, and the Pirates haven't had a winning season in that time. <laughs> wow. No, but, yeah, it, one of the things we see in the article is that you know, no person born in St. Louis since 1902 
has reached you know the age of 25 without living through a victory parade. It's unbelievable. Right? So, so, so everybody talks about the fans, right? St. Louis's fans are famous for being supportive and coming out every day, um, and and they do, and they are. But they also have had reason to be, right? Which is that you know they can always be sure that even if it's not going well right now, it will soon. Um, the Cardinals have delivered on that for essentially as long as there has been a Cardinals. You know, one thing that's really interesting to me, and I think it all ties into what we've been talking about, is I've seen an interview with Ed Sherman, did the interview with one of the editors at SI, and the main topic was um, a conversation that the SI editor had overheard. Uh, It was an ESPN, the magazine executive, kind of bashing SI and saying that uh, SI tells a story that has already been told, whereas ESPN, the magazine, in his opinion, tells a story that's going to happen and I don't know in my opinion by far and and this isn't I mean we've had everyone in your magazine on and and we love your magazine but I like ESPN the magazine too to some degree but not even close it's the stories you guys tell and it seems like in baseball right now you have to be one of two things you have to either be an advanced stats guy or you have to be the other side of that you have to you have to be one or the other, and it has to be all the way to that, in your face. You're either the advanced stats guy all the way, and every story you have to tell has to be based on these complicated stats, or you have to be saying why those stats are ridiculous, and you have to be the traditionalist. You have to be all the way the other way. And I think the stories are getting lost, and I think that's why I love something like what you did um, on Suspedes and what you're going to do here in a little bit with the with the Cardinals this week. It's And I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I think that, the story, the storytelling that SI does is what I'm looking for right now because I can't find it anywhere else because everyone else is so caught up in whether or not they're an advanced stat guy or not. Right. Well, you know, I think that the statistical revolution um, has been fabulous in a lot of ways. You know, I, I enjoy reading the work of, you know, the guys who focus on stats and have a real mastery of them. Jonah Carey is um, a great example of it. I right. don't know if you read Jonah Carey, but he's, he's great at it, and we love Jonah. You know what I mean? Right. But it seems like you can't read Jonah without it being so, you know, it's just – I love Jonah for that, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but you just – you know, I love Jonah because he can do that, but sometimes I, I want more. I want the human side of it, you know what I mean? And, and that, right. I guess that's no, just not I, what he does. I know what you mean, and, you know, that stuff is, is fantastic, and it has a, has a place, and it just deepens our understanding of a game – it's interesting. It's a great way to look at it. But, you know, there, there's other ways to look at things, too. And I think at SI we try to be, you know, very um, cutting edge as far as our understanding and use of the stats and increasingly more so. I mean, I think you've probably seen, you know, the word, uh, well, the word, the acronym WAR, you know, for wins mm-hmm. above replacement in our magazine probably more times in the past year than ever before, you know. So we're really kind of, you know, aware of that and we, we understand it. But, you know, there's another side of things, too, and it's all about putting, using those stats to putting, putting them into the context of the story. You know, what does it mean? Why are these stats important? You know, what, what else um, do they help us to understand about sports, about the people we're, we're, we're following and writing about, and really about our world? So I guess that's really what, um, what our goal is. Um, and it's really not about looking back, um, especially now. You know, we very rarely these days will write about a game that happened last week um, in any way other than to 
to look at that game and to kind of try to analyze and figure out what it means um, kind of going forward and really putting it uh, in context of the larger stories we're trying to tell. Yeah, and um, I love what I love the magazine on the iPad. You know, tonight I can at midnight. Tonight mm-hmm. I can download right at midnight. It's there every Tuesday at midnight. Mm-hmm. We get we do the show all day. You know, we get done with the show. I relax, watch some TV, and I love being able to get that magazine at midnight on the iPad because it's not in my mailbox until I wake up on Thursday. You know, so that's right. two days ahead of time, and the magazine, you know, really comes to life. And, and I think it was Richard Deutsch who said on this podcast that so many. He says it's always reminded to us as staff at SI that the magazine is called Sports Illustrated. And the illustrated part of the magazine really lends itself fabulously to the iPad. How has Twitter and the iPad and all this great technology we have kind of aided your storytelling as a writer in the magazine? Um, well, you know, I mean, it, I, don't, I can't say that I do much reporting via Twitter. I guess some people... Sometimes try to reach out to people on Twitter and stuff. Um, I know I don't know who controls Johannes Cespedes' Twitter account. Um, I assume it's not him because you know he, he'll admit that his English is not particularly good at all. He, you know he's only been here for about 15 months. Um, but anyway, like he, he he you know after the story came out, his people reached out via Twitter to, to me, and you know they, they liked the story and everything. But I, th- I think it's really just, for us, it's like everybody else, you know. It's just a way of staying informed and just getting a million different views on things, probably most of which you disagree with, um, on everything that happens, you know, right away. So, you know, I think that that's really what, what it's best for. You know, I, I'd say in terms of even little baseball news, you know, like Jerickson Profar, the, the Rangers' top prospect, top prospect of all in baseball, being called up. You know, you read about that on Twitter uh, way before anywhere else. Um, so I really think that just as far as being hooked in, um, that, that's, that's the real advantage for a reporter. And, you know, I, I think I had this conversation with S.L. Price. I was trying to sell Twitter to him. He was on the show, and we were talking about Twitter, and he's not on there. And he's like, why would I be on there? And it was a perfect example last night. This is what I said to him. My favorite thing about Twitter, you can tell me what you think about this, Ben, mm-hmm. is that like last night, it's quiet in my house, but I'm, I'm watching Yankees and Orioles. Everyone else is asleep, so it's just me sitting here watching. And uh, Hafner hits the home run, and there's no one for me in the room to talk about it with. But I, can talk, uh, but I can turn my Twitter feed on, and there's people from Baltimore, people from New York. There's you know, all the different people who cover the sport. You know, Sweeney Murdy talking about what he saw at the stadium. You know, it's like having 50 people over your house to watch the game. Uh, with you, uh, even though there's nobody there, you know, and I think that's kind of an underrated part about Twitter. Um, no, yeah, it, it certainly is. You know, as far as a you know, kind of you know, built-in community, I mean, it's up to your personality. You know, I mean, I think that guys like uh, Scott Price, um, he probably doesn't want the distraction, and it certainly is distracting, especially when you're trying to write something, especially when you're trying to write on deadline. Um, I think that anybody is kind of prone to that sort of distraction and procrastination. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's certainly been a boon in a lot of ways to anybody who does what we do. And speaking of Twitter, you can find Ben on there. He's at SI underscore Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. And uh, it was Chris Stone who was the one who overheard an ESPN executive saying uh, the quote is that ESPN is about what's going to happen next. Sports Illustrated is about what already happened. 
So I'm going to have to right. respectfully disagree with that, but just to clear up what we had said earlier. Uh, I'll disagree as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were kind of all over the place, but I really enjoyed it. Um, thought we touched on some cool things. You, you got the Cardinals piece uh, this week. Anything else we can look forward to uh, in the next couple weeks, uh, stuff that you're going to be doing here before the All-Star break in a month or two? Yeah, you know, uh, I guess one thing I can say is we have a pretty cool story in the where are they now issue. Um, we're still, you know, a while away from that, but uh, it's about a, uh, it's actually about a former NBA player who's got a pretty cool uh, post-career life. Hmm. I don't want to give too much away, but gotcha. you know, that's one thing you can look for. All right. Uh, again, uh, it's Ben Ryder, Sports Illustrated. Uh, I highly recommend his article. It's the one with Crosby on the cover, I think two issues ago now. Uh, it was right. the May 13th issue about the Suspedes article we're looking at. And that's available online now, too. You can find that on the website. What is it? They wait till what, the next issue comes out to put the stuff in the magazine on the Internet? Is that kind of how it works, roughly? It's essentially a week later. A week later, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I just, I guess I just tweeted out the Suspedes article yesterday. So you can, if you're having trouble finding it, you can go to my Twitter account. Um, and find the link there if you want. Yeah, and I'll take a look and retweet it too so that if someone's following me and not you, which probably would be insane on their part, they can uh, find it that way as well. <laughs> but, uh, Ben, thanks so much for doing this. Really enjoyed it. Always a pleasure, man. Looking forward to uh, becoming a five-timer sometime soon on the Sportscaster. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch, and we'll work that out soon. All right, man. All right, thank, thank you. All right, I want to thank our guests today, Kenny Albert and Ben Ryder. Kenny, of course, from the Rangers Radio Network, Fox Sports, all over the place, broadcasting all the various things that Kenny broadcasts, and also Ben from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. Night owls, those two. Yeah, well, especially <laughs> Kenny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Facebook, you can find us there, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com, and check us out at www.sports-casters.com. Also, don't forget to check out that that Kickstarter we mentioned earlier. Finders Keepers documentary is the way to find it on Kickstarter. You know, you were saying about documentaries that you're kind of a fan. Or yeah, I, I enjoy them. It, they're a weird thing because uh, we had Netflix for a while. and Best thing about Netflix, documentaries you, and TV shows. You look at something and it's like a ugh, documentary. You know, you just think this is going to be dry and boring. But I would say just about everyone I've watched was pretty good. Uh King of Kong, like I said, I loved. Uh, the exit through the gift shop was really good. So check it out. They're not as dry as you may think. Man on a Wire was supposed to be great. Right. I haven't seen that one, but that's supposed to be great too. But, yeah, check out the Kickstarter Finders Keepers. All right, one more thing for today from me. When I think about summer and what I love about it, I think one thing is definitely concerts and going to summer concerts and all the different concerts that are out there you know music has changed a lot in the last decade in the sense that artists are trying to reach people through tours more than they did in the past because there's more money in touring right and so bands are on the road more and that means there's more opportunity for places bands to come to places maybe they haven't been before or haven't been in a long time and one of the things that people in buffalo get really excited about is something that for a long time was called thursday in the square and now is called uh, Thursday at the Harbor. 
because they moved it from Lafayette Square to, to, the, the, harbor, right? to the harbor. And it's always a big thing every summer to wait for that lineup to come out. And what is going to be down there this year? And what are we going to want to see? Because... You know, it's a it's a big deal here. It's a free concert. Right. And in the past, there's been some really cool bands that I've seen there, like Candlebox. I've seen Moist there way back when. I've seen Better Than Ezra there. And then they also have some bigger concerts that they charge for. Those used to just be at the harbor, and the other ones were at the square. Now everything's at the harbor. But it's interesting how no matter what, when this lineup comes out, it just gets crushed. Every <laughs> year, it's the worst lineup of all time, and I feel awful about it in the sense that, okay, I kind of think that the lineup this year is awful. Yeah. But it's also free concerts, and no one's forcing me to go down there. Right. Yeah, I, we don't always chime in on each other's things here, but the one thing... No, I want your opinion on Buffalo this. gets kind of dumped on for a lot of things. The one thing that is fantastic about it is this was kind of the first one to do it. But there's like three or four free concert series. Like every night of the week, you can go to a concert for either free or really like maybe ten bucks or five, something. The ones at our park, they kind of focus on classic rock, and they charge five to ten dollars. But I mean, they have huge names. They've there had the summer. tragically hip there before. Yeah, though, they have too. Billy Idol, Joan Jett, Ario Speedwagon, Chicago, yeah. Bad Company, so Leonard Skinner, huge names for five. Right or $10. when you said that the the Thursday at the Harbor is kind of lousy, now they have competition too because there's just so many concert series i know the that the harbor pay series this year is going to have the tragically hip and now just announced the black keys which and is guns huge. and roses and guns and roses right so that's a huge concert series those aren't free though but and i think a lot of the criticism has been that they're concentrating on the shows that they can make money on with ticket sales and beer sales and kind of not concentrating as much on the free concerts and kind of just oh taking advantage of people going down there because people will go down to that for anything right the reason to go down to that isn't for the the bands usually. No, it's to drink outside. Right. <laughs> and enjoy it's a reason to go downtown, right. which sometimes we don't have enough reasons to do here. And um and to drink outside and have fun and I don't know, did you look at the lineup? Is there anything I there that Or if I did I already forgot it, so it I must mean, not it's have been good. Hold steady in the Hollerados. Oh, I did see this because I saw someone did a review of it. Supposedly they're phenomenal, I guess. Okay. I mean I one off is acts I don't know. Right. Um, I knew that I'd known the name Todd Rungin, but Todd I, Rundgren, Rundgren, that's a classic but I didn't rock. know where, but then I, I realized, and I'd heard of Lotus. Yeah. But it's just... Certain people would be excited about some of these, right. but it's not exactly broad appeal. And usually, I know they like to mix it up. They like to do a lot of different types of genres, and usually I hope there's one on there that I'm really pumped about. This year there isn't, but I'm not going to be the one to complain and say it's about the worst ever, because it's yeah. free concerts. And you know what? This year... I'm going to get to see Pearl Jam. I'm going to get to see – I'm going to go to the Fake Guns and Roses concert. <laughs> I'm going to see the Tragically Hip, and I'll go see Bad Company and maybe another one at at the – Canal Fest or whatever, yeah. And uh, I'll go see – I think the Tea Party are playing free somewhere oh, here really? at some point, and I'll try to check that out. Yeah. So I'm going to get to my shows, whether it's at the Square or the Harbor or not. But I just thought it was interesting. I wanted to see where you came out on the uh, idea of – Worst concert ever. About no. it being the worst concert ever. When it's there's so great. many good ones and whatever. Like you said, maybe someone out there loves Lotus, and maybe someone loves uh, the other band you mentioned. All right, one last thing for me, and again, I'm going to have you chime in on this as well. But uh, we might have even done this before, maybe not on this 
podcast per se, but had this conversation. But there's a lot of things that uh, maybe are quasi-embarrassing to me as a man or as a sports fan. Uh, so I'm going to do a few embarrassing confessions, followed by the the point of my one last thing this week. But I talked to you before. I've never seen The Godfather or Goodfellas. That's embarrassing. You've lent them to me. They're sitting on my shelf still. Yeah, you've had them I'm, for almost a year, probably. Probably. Yeah. I mean to watch them, but I, they're long or they something. They are long films, yes. So I, I don't jump into them, but that's embarrassing. Uh, from a sports pan, fan's perspective, I've never been for a sporting event into an NBA arena or a Major League Baseball stadium. Ooh. Uh, the closest I came from Major League Baseball was the Hard Rock Cafe in Toronto. Weren't you in Gund Arena? Oh, but it was for a concert. For a concert. Right. Yeah, I've been to plenty of, like, I've been to MSG. So, I mean, that's technically a basketball place, too. Um, I've never changed my own oil all by myself. (laughs) I've never done that either. Um, I haven't cared about a Madden game since at least 2007. Maybe going back even further than that. The last one I have is 2011. But maybe the strangest of all of those uh, is I've never golfed. I've never once carried clubs and golfed the closest i've ever done was go to a driving range which i've maybe done once but this weekend if certain things fall right i might golf for the first time so i can scratch one of the embarrassing things off my list golf to me has always been kind of like there's always there's a level of uh rules that it's like sitting down at a blackjack table which i've also never done so yeah here's another one uh there's a certain etiquette that if you're new to it, it's a little it's intimidating. intimidating. So I've never golfed before, but I have a bunch of buddies that are going to go up, and they're all terrible, and they're all going to be hungover. So if I'm going to go out and do it, what better time to do it than with a bunch of terrible hungover guys that I won't care too much if they make fun of me for it. So Where's the plan to go play at what course? I don't know. You don't know? Somewhere uh, for Memorial Day and uh, – the other one, Labor Day, we always go up to a buddy's cabin, and I guess they've kind of had a tradition of going out golfing early in the morning on Saturday. So one friend has extra clubs, so I, I might go out there I think it might, and embarrass might have picked a good weekend because I think there's a lot of people on these holiday weekends that, that go out as their one time a year yep. or their first time and try it out. And I have been golfing, but not a lot of times, and I'm not very good at it. Well, I know your brother once posted, your brother Anthony, the athlete that's good at freaking everything, posted a video of Greg at a driving range sending worm burners all over the place and just laughing his ass off at him. And that's going to be me. I told him, I go, how hard are people going to laugh when I just straight up whiff on my tee shot? And he's like, oh, they'll pick on you a little bit, but everyone's bad. It won't, it'll be fine. The hardest thing to do is keep your head in there. Keep, stay down, yeah. Yep, keep your head in there. That's the hardest thing to do, and that's why you're going to miss a tee shot is if you Looking to find my ball. pull your head out yep. too quick, and that's the hardest thing. But So, yeah, at 30, almost 32 years old, I will go golfing, hopefully, for the first time this weekend. What I hope for you is that you don't get to a point where that means, like, popping the cork, and you're just... Oh, I'm all in? Yeah. Yeah, well, Michelle was... My wife was actually kind of asking me, she's like, why don't you golf? Why don't you golf? And I'm like, I don't know. Why do you want me to golf so bad? And then you're going to start, and she's going to hate it yeah, then. She's gonna be you got to go to the driving range again. Yep. You're going out again. Drop another couple hundred bucks on the right. club. Yeah. So. so, yeah, my one more thing is uh, thank you very much. Uh, hopefully I won't embarrass myself too much.